Today, I'm pleased to announce we'll be opening five additional vaccination centers. Stepping up the shots, the feds bring mass vaccinations to South Florida. And this is the right time to expand on the executive order of the governor. Widening the window, lowering the age for shots to 55 with conditions. We should have no ballot harvesting at all. And you can't leave these boxes unattended. Securing the vote or blocking it. South Florida lawmakers debate that bill and more. Tunneling under traffic. Hear firsthand about a vice mayor's visit with Elon Musk, the boring company. It's all live, all here, this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg. As vaccine supply ramps up, we begin with the man in the eye of the storm. Florida's Director of Emergency Management directs crisis response, and this state has had its share. Lately, that's about getting COVID vaccines to Florida seniors and to those who need it most. Now add to that managing response to a roster of hurricanes and storms. Jared Moskowitz has led that effort in Florida for the last two years. The one Democrat in a Republican uh, administration, he has that top job picked by Ron DeSantis. And he announced this week he'll be leaving at the end of April. But a lot to do before then, so let's get into it with the director joining us live via Skype. Jared, good morning. May we call you Jared? Good morning. <laughs> Of course, of course. <laughs> Call me, Jared. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning, Jared. Uh, let's begin sort of with the trend line on the coronavirus in Florida. We are seeing over the last couple of weeks a decrease in the number of cases and a ramping up in the amount of vaccine. Hospitalizations are down. It seems that we are trending in the right direction. Would you agree? Yeah, look, we're, we're definitely trending in the right direction. All the data shows uh, you know, good news, obviously 4.2 plus million people now vaccinated, our uh, positivity rate under 6% for the first time in a long period of time, cases are down, hospitalizations are down. That was the whole idea of why we started with 65 and older first state in the nation, uh, HHS, the CDC then copied and pasted that plan to the other states. We got 4.3 million seniors, they make up 80% of our deaths here in the state of Florida. And the idea was to reduce the death rate and reduce hospitalizations. So the governor this week uh, appeared a couple of times almost daily. And the message that we heard this week is more of a supply coming down. And he actually went through some numbers. And then more sites opening up. And then also all the cold weather up north really hampering the distribution of it. So forecast this week for us. Give us some news here. What, what are we expecting in the state this week? How many people are going to be getting their vaccines? Yeah, so the Biden administration has done a fantastic job increasing both allocations, production. And so we've been seeing that increase week over week. You know, we'll be receiving about 400,000 doses directly to the state, uh, over 60,000 doses directly to pharmacies for the federal pharmacy program, Walmart, Publix, Winn-Dixie. Uh, and uh, then we're, as you know, the, it was announced last week, uh, we're working with FEMA, the Biden administration on these four sites. These are federally supported sites. The state is operating these sites for the federal government, but 80,000 additional vaccines coming each week for these particular sites. Each of those sites are going to have two mobile units that go along with each site so that we can get vaccine into our disadvantaged minority communities, bringing the vaccine to them. So we're about to see a dramatic increase uh, in uh, the vaccine available to our public. What about what about the weather? Is the weather going to hold up this week's supply? 
Yeah, well, that happened last week. So, uh, you know, we lost about five days as far as when we were supposed to get our Moderna shipment. It arrived about five days later. Our Pfizer vaccine uh, arrived on time. I mean, look, we, we planned for those contingencies, which is why, even though there were some cancellations, it wasn't dramatic. Uh, you know, obviously, we're hoping that the federal uh, shipping partners, along with Moderna, you know, figure out that, you know, we have winter and sometimes uh, that affects shipping. So hopefully they're working on different different contingencies for the future. Yeah. Uh, Jared, you alluded to it a minute ago, this new FEMA mass vaccination site four in the state of Florida, one at the Miami-Dade North College campus. Uh, initially, uh, the governor and perhaps you had a few misgivings about a FEMA site, believing that perhaps some of the state's allocation that you were directing was going to be diverted. But that's not the case, is it? I mean, they're getting their own direct shipments. Yeah, that's right. No, I, I never had any misgivings uh, working with FEMA. Look, the, the division has a long history working with FEMA here in the state. In fact, we have more experience working with FEMA than we would like, quite frankly. Um, but, but no, I think the governor, his position has been clear, at least in our conversations from the beginning, which is, listen, if the federal government is gonna come and open federally supported sites along with states help, they can't do it by themselves. I mean, I'm supplying all the nurses and they're gonna give additional vaccines for those sites, then of course we would take that. Uh, but, but his original position also had a caveat, which is look, if they are just coming to siphon uh, from the state supply, then maybe that's not the best plan. And that's because we've never had a distribution issue. It's always been uh, a supply issue. We vaccinated more seniors than any other state. Uh, we're doing more uh, first shots per hundred than the top four largest populous states, California, Texas, New York, Florida is, is number one. And so, you know, our position is if the federal government wants to send us more vaccine, we'll take it in any uh, way, shape or form they want to give it to the yeah. state of Florida. Let, let me follow up on that a little bit at this North Dade site. I have seen that they are going to deliver about 2,000 shots per day, and then they're going to have two mobile units, which will go out into neighborhoods and deliver 500 doses from each of those mobile units. And the target here I take are underserved communities, that is to say minority communities, who, as according to the last website I saw, only 4% of black people in the state of Florida have been vaccinated so far. This is going to address that? Yeah, so, you know, this was our idea. We brought this idea uh, to the Biden administration, uh, and they were fantastic to work with. This is a national issue. It's not just a Florida issue. We're seeing a dramatic digital divide. You know, regardless of where I open sites, I have sites in minority neighborhoods that sometimes vaccinate overwhelmingly white people, and that's because of the digital divide. Obviously, we know about vaccine hesitancy. Uh, we're partnering with HBCUs now in the state of Florida. We've been partnering with churches, 51 of them in the faith-based community. That's been highly successful. A lot of states have copied that. But the idea of the mobile units is to take the appointments away from the computer, away from the 1-800 number, and go into the community uh, to make sure that we have vaccine equity. It's tremendously important to myself, the division, the governor. Uh, access is one thing. You can open up a site. But if it's not serving the community, then clearly that's not working. These mobile units will solve that problem. Yeah, clear clear up some of the rules, if you would. So we have this big patchwork of distribution sites. We have the, the mass sites and we have the grocery pharmacies and, and Publix and now Walmart coming online, Walgreens and CVS and uh, the hospitals have it. And then there's the state supply and now we have a federal supply. So, Jared, are the rules and the protocols for those supplies and those places 
the same for everyone, even though the governor's emergency order still says 65 and up and mm -hmm. hospitals and discretion. Now we have Jackson about to do 55 and up. So I think people get really confused about what's where and, and who's eligible and are the rules the same? Yeah, so the rules are the same. Uh, so every single solitary place is operating under the governor's executive order, whether it's a long-term care facility, a hospital, a state site, a federal site, a county health department, uh, any of the pharmacies. It's all the same. What Jackson Memorial is doing is what they've been allowed to do since the beginning, which is we gave hospitals the ability to do people with comorbidities. Jackson Memorial is saying we're going to start doing that. We're going to do it based on age, so 55 and older and fitting a certain amount of comorbidity. So they are operating under the executive order, as are many other hospitals. Uh, some in the Orlando area I know have been doing people with comorbidities. We got to increase access to people with comorbidities. The data is, is very clear uh, on that. So I'm excited that Jackson Memorial is going to go ahead and do that. Yeah. Uh, Jared, we know that Broward Mayor Steve Geller, after seeing what was announced at Jackson, that he is saying, yeah, I want 55 and older people in Broward, and I guess they're roughly 340, 350,000 of them, seniors, 65 and older, but younger people, 55, uh, who have comorbidities, underlying health conditions, he wants them to get shots as well. Now, does that need an exemption to the executive order? How does that work? No, so the executive order uh, allowed all hospitals to do people with comorbidities. We did not set an age limit. We did not define comorbidities. And the reason why is we didn't think government uh, was the right uh, avenue. We wanted to leave that up to doctors uh, and the health professionals. So uh, in Broward County, you have uh, Broward Health, you have Memorial, you have Holy Cross, all receiving vaccine from us. They can all be doing comorbidities. I know some of them are. Uh, and so if, if Mayor Geller uh, wants to follow the model laid out by Jackson, he can get with the CEOs of those hospital systems uh, and make sure it's being implemented. But to be clear, those hospitals have the ability to do that now. They had that ability to do that yesterday. Hmm. So we're going to take a quick break. Um, I pulled up your resignation letter, and for the first time in my career, I actually put someone's resignation letter on my Twitter feed because <laughs> there were parts of it that were just so beautiful. Yeah. So if it's okay with you, we'll talk about that and more when we come right back. back with Jared Moskowitz, the director of Florida's Division of Emergency Management, uh, outgoing, as we mentioned, in a couple of months, and the resignation letter, Jared, that you wrote this week to the governor. Um, I just want to read a little portion of it for anyone that hasn't seen it yet, uh, the part, my favorite part, that says, uh, Governor, I'm tremendously grateful for the opportunity you gave a progressive elected Democrat to join your administration. If only more people could put aside policy differences for the benefit of Americans, we would be better off as a country. I'm hopeful my two years can serve as an example and not an exception. Um, in these divided times and with your unique experience these last two years, Jared, have you, do you think you've moved the needle on that? Yeah, well, look, there's a lot of uh, competing interests, obviously, wanting to divide us. There's a lot of money uh, in division uh, in, in corporate media world. And so we're, we're swimming upstream. I mean, the idea that working together is all of a sudden this novel idea just goes to show how far we've come. Uh, but people are hungry for that. You know, Congress isn't working. One of the reasons why Congress isn't working is if you hate the other side, how can you work with them? Look, I I think uh, my Republican colleagues in a lot of areas are wrong. I think they're vehemently wrong 
But I don't think they're bad people. I don't think they're evil. And when we demonize each other, we can't work with each other. It's why government is broken uh, in, in a lot of ways. And so the public is hungry to see us work together. Uh, but the special interests and, and the, the giant 24-hour news coverage wants to divide us because there's just a lot of money in that. Yeah. Well, amen to what you just said. I hope that there are more people like you. And kudos to the governor for reaching over to the Democratic side of the aisle and picking you. Uh, Jared, let me ask you to do something a little unusual. Uh, here for the last 11 or 12 months, you have been totally concentrated on getting vaccine to all these vulnerable seniors and frontline medical workers in Florida, people who, you know, stand the risk of serious health uh, injury or death. And 30,000, 30,000 Floridians have died from this terrible virus. Uh, do you have any friends who have uh, died because of COVID-19? And, and what, what is your feeling about all these mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles who have lost loved ones and weren't there to say goodbye to them? Uh, I mean, it's, it's devastating. Um, you know, I, I experienced what happened at Marjorie Stillman Douglas in the city of Parkland. Uh, you know, just two years prior to the pandemic hitting, I saw what it was like when all of a sudden, in a blink of an eye, kids didn't come home to their parents. Uh, I witnessed that. I then found myself, obviously, in this position for the pandemic for the very same experience in a lot of ways. Yes. Uh, people in long-term care facilities, uh, you know, locked away in order to protect them, many of them in their last years, many of them passing, not being able to be with family members, uh, family members not being able to visit them in the hospital, not being able to have proper funerals. Um, it, 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 it's tragic. And to be quite honest, I don't think we really understand the emotional, uh, financial, uh, mental toll that this has taken on families. And it may take years for us to unpack. Mm -hmm. um, and while I haven't lost anyone uh, personally to COVID, I've had family members die from other uh, illnesses during COVID, and we couldn't see them in the hospital. Family members couldn't visit them, couldn't have proper proper funerals. Uh, and so um, this has just been a devastating time. I, I want, I've worked every day to try to get to the end of this nightmare as fast as possible. Um, the vaccine is a bittersweet moment, but for the families that now have empty chairs and empty tables, empty rooms at their houses, there will never be any closure and there's nothing I can do for those people. I know you said that part of the reason you're resigning is to come home and be with your family and your little ones because you don't get that time back. Uh, that's probably a continuation of what you were just talking about. What's next? What's next for you? Well, I mean, today it was uh, soccer and, and basketball, uh, which, you know, those are the things I miss. I mean, you know, when dropping your kids off at school becomes something you look forward to, obviously you're not spending enough time at home. And so... <laughs> Um, you know, look, I, I, I want to spend more time with my kids. When I left, my four-year-old was two. Uh, I've been away for half his life. I mean, I was putting him in the car seat the other day, and he said, Daddy, you work for the governor. And I said, yeah, that's right, buddy. And he said, I don't want you to work for the governor anymore. I want you to come home. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I decided to, to listen to my four-year-old again, just learning from what happened in Parkland. Tomorrow is just not guaranteed. I think we've learned that from the pandemic. And so, you know, I, I, I want to get back into public service. I think it's important. I think uh, being at the table when these important decisions are made, uh, I have a lot of fire still left in the belly. But you know, look, I've been working for Florida's families now for a long time. I gotta, 
I got to work for my family. When my kids get a little older and I don't feel like I'm missing these precious moments, uh, I'll get back into it. Yeah. Well, we're, we're so glad that you've got those precious moments now and for the future with your family and Jared Moskowitz. Thank you so much for your excellent service as the uh, emergency management director for the last two years. And best of luck to you and your family. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Great. All right, up next, state lawmakers have a lot on their plate when they meet in just a few days. The latest edition changes to the way you vote. That and more with two key South Florida lawmakers is next. Governor Ron DeSantis was in South Florida on Friday making the case for a change in the way that uh, voters get their mail-in ballots. The governor and supporters want voters to request ballots for every general election, they say, to tighten security. Opponents say that just adds another hurdle to voting. And here to talk about that and other goings-on in Tallahassee, <laughs> State Representative Evan Jenny of Dania Beach, co-democratic leader in the State House, and Senator Manny Diaz of Hialeah, part of the Republican leadership and chair of the State Education Committee as well. Good morning, gentlemen. Gentlemen, welcome. We are glad you were here. Good morning. Great to be with you this morning. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for having us. Sure. Uh, Senator Diaz, let me begin with you, and I want you both to comment here. After years of being the butt of late-night comedian jokes about how terrible our elections are last fall, last <clears throat> November, uh, Florida pulled off an absolutely perfect election. More than 4 million people voted by mail. Now we've got the governor saying, hey, we, we need to improve the system and make it a little bit harder, as it were, to get those mail-in ballots. Um, Representative Jenny, what's your reaction to this? Uh, well, my reaction to it is, uh, quite frankly, I'm, I'm not quite sure why we want to do that. Florida's being held up as an example of the way you want your elections run. And quite frankly, uh, we've been under control of one party for almost the last uh, 25 to 30 years. Um, so all of the system that we're looking at right now that apparently needs, uh, according to the governor, some sort of rewrite uh, was created uh, by the party that's currently in control. I happen to think the election went incredibly smoothly in the state of Florida uh, and not quite sure why we want to make it more difficult for anyone to vote uh, as long as they are a legal registered voter. Senator Manny Diaz, uh, please do react to that. And, and I just want to throw in there that the supervisors of elections uh, they don't seem to favor this because for no partisan reason, they just don't, they say it's unnecessary more work to do. W what do you say? Well, I think we did have a smooth election night, November 2020, and I think we've improved in Florida. Every cycle we've made tweaks to improve since the issue that we had in 2000 with the hanging chads and all those things. I think continuously reviewing these policies and making sure that we take what's happened in other states and make sure it doesn't happen to us here. It's a continuous improvement model. It's not to make voting harder. I mean, to say that voting hard is floor in Florida is uh, is a bit uh, uh, disingenuous from anyone who would say that because we have, you know, over a month of voting. We have plenty of early voting with with ample time for people in ample sites, and uh, our our mail-in ballot system has evolved. Uh, making sure that that's secure and that there's no fraud. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And again continually improving our system is the way to make sure that we continue to have these smooth election nights. Yeah, Senator Diaz, here is the argument about why it makes it 
harder currently. If you sign up for a mail-in ballot, you are qualified to automatically get one for two general election cycles. Uh, you just simply get it in the mail. Uh, what the governor and what you know the legislature uh, is proposing is to make it just every single election you must apply again. Now, doesn't that add sort of a, a level of difficulty to something that we really should make easy? Well, look, initially absentee ballots in Florida were only allowed for people that had an excuse. And I think it is a responsibility, a civic responsibility of voters to pay attention to what's going on. And if they want to have the, uh, the ease of voting through mail, that's perfectly fine. And we've done it well in Florida. But I think we need to make sure that we eliminate possibilities for there to be fraud that we've seen in other states where they've had newer programs with mail-in ballots. Yeah. And people may have received ballots that didn't order them or don't live there anymore. So I think it's just a matter of uh, making sure that we're on top of things and making sure it's going correctly. Uh, having folks order ballots for either uh, a full cycle, which is a primary and a general, uh, or something like that, I think is per perfectly feasible. And again, this bill is a work in progress, and we'll see what happens as it goes through the legislative process. So, Evan, Jenny, the uh, bill came out of committee, one of the committees this week, five to four, uh, right down party lines. Why is this a partisan issue if these rules apply to everybody, everyone of every party and no party at all follow the same rules? Why, why is this so partisan? Well, unfortunately, it's it's due to just political and partisan gridlock. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, Senator Diaz has made some valid points. We had a very smooth November here in the state of Florida. Uh, I also think Mr. Putney made a valid point as well when we're talking about uh, the ease of voting and having to do something over and over again every single cycle. But I think at the end of the day, uh, Florida came off without a hitch, um, and there's no reason to go back and tweak that. Um, you know, I think that if you look in terms of just partisanship, which I want to try to avoid as much as possible, uh, but if you look in terms of partisanship, uh, for years and years and years, uh, the Republican Party held a great advantage in uh, mail-in uh, ballots uh, coming into the state. Uh, this year, that changed a bit. Uh, Democrats had a better uh, vote-by-mail uh, turnout. Um, I hope that's not the reason why, but I know some of my colleagues are saying that it does smell of that. Yeah. Uh, if we can, uh, Governor DeSantis was in West Palm Beach on Friday, um, really laid out the case for these changes. We want to play a little bit of what the governor had to say. And so we don't want any ballot harvesting in the state of Florida. And we're going to make sure, again, we're not a big ballot harvesting state as it is, uh, but any type of loopholes or any type of, uh, of, of room where that could be abused, we want to make sure that we, we address it. Yeah, just to sort of lay it out there, ballot harvesting, uh, as the governor probably was going to say, involves people who go out and go to mainly long-term care facilities, uh, old age homes, and help people fill out their ballots. This used to happen, at least in Miami-Dade, uh, every year back in the uh, 1990s, early 2000. And sometimes then the boat broker would have a handful of ballots and deliver them to the elections department. But, you know, Senator Diaz, that's illegal now. Only a family member can handle the ballot of somebody else. So we don't really have ballot harvesting anymore, do we? Well, that's a county ordinance. There's questions as to does that rule apply outside of Miami-Dade or who it applies to. There's, there's a lot of gray area in that. 
Uh, I think you've seen uh, less of that over the years compared to what we saw in the 80s and 90s. But it does lead to the concern that if someone in, in one of those long-term care facilities or in that kind of situation orders ballots, um, could it be that they should be able to receive it for the primary and the general and, and not have it go on for two, three, or four years? I think that's the question there of maintaining the, the integrity of that process. Obviously, campaigns receive the information of, of who votes and, and voters that are out there. And uh, both sides do a very good job of making sure that they, uh, they reach out to voters to uh, provide the opportunity for either vote by mail or voting in person early or on election day. There's a lot of that during the cycle. Believe me, we see it all the time where it's uh, advertised and communicated. For, forgive me if I miss this. I heard what the governor said. I heard what you said. I don't think ballot harvesting is part of this bill, is it? Uh, it depends what version of the bill we end up, but uh, and it depends the de definition of ballot harvesting. When you look at ballot harvesting, uh, as uh, Mr. Putney mentioned before, you're you were talking about having ballots picked up. In Miami-Dade, there is an ordinance in reference to who can actually touch a ballot, who can pick up a ballot. Right. So I think I, my, that's my already in place. My question is, in this bill going through, Senate Bill 90 does not address ballot harvesting at all that I've seen, unless I'm missing one of the amendments. But what it does, what it does also include, it does, it actually codifies what the what Governor DeSantis did in this last election, uh, give more time to the supervisors yeah. of elections to count ballot, uh, the the vote by mail ballots. So Evan Jenny, that's I, by all accounts, everyone thought that was a good thing. Yeah, no, and, and I think the governor said it there himself in the clip that was just played. We don't have a ballot harvesting problem right now in the state of Florida. Uh, I think ultimately what those are, there are a lot of people um, really on both sides of the aisle uh, that uh, are claiming different levels of fraud and election fraud in this past uh, uh, November 2020 uh, cycle. Uh, so it, it, I just worry that doing that are going to stoke people's fears and their phobias that something nefarious is going on with our electoral system just to throw red, beet, uh, red uh, meat at a base. Um, you know, it, it, the bill itself, uh, you know, we'll have to take a look and, and really get into it. That vote that you discussed earlier uh, took place in the Senate and not in the House. But uh, I, I, I'm just I have genuine concerns about the direction that we're, we're pointing in and filing bills, writing bills just to get your base riled up. Uh, I don't think is the way that that our legislature should be moving. And I'm concerned that's exactly what this is. You have a bill say one thing and then a major proponent of the bill come out and basically say, yeah, and we're worried about this other stuff uh, that actually isn't addressed in the bill. Uh, I don't think it's good policy making. Uh, woulda, coulda, shouldas uh, do not belong in our state statutes. We need to rely on solid evidence and move policies forward that are going to address those issues, whether they may or may not be there. But uh, I, I just think that that this is this is red meat for a base uh, that is hungry to believe uh, that there was nefarious actions right. and actors. Evan, hold, uh, hold, excuse me, hold hold on just a minute. Uh, if you and many Diaz hold your spots, we're going to come back. Much more to talk about the Florida legislature convenes in early March. We can talk more about that when we come back. Welcome back on this Sunday. We are talking about the upcoming session of the legislature with State Representative Evan Jenny of Dania Beach and State Senator Manny Diaz Jr. 
of Hialeah. And by the way, gentlemen, feel free to call me Michael. You don't have to call me <laughs> Mr. Putney. We I call him the senator around <laughs> here. You can do that too. <laughs> yeah. I have a feeling that Evan Jenny calls me Mr. Putney because he went to high school with my daughter. But Evan, thank you very much for that deference. <laughs> But not a problem. Not a problem, Michael. Not all right. Thank, thank, thank you very much. All right. Let's move on to the other. I think one of the other really big bills in this legislative session. The sort of the the short term name is the anti mob bill, formerly known as the Combating Violence Disorder and Looting and Law Enforcement Protection Act. And um, uh, Senator Diaz, uh, this ostensibly is in result. Uh, a result, a consequence of demonstrations that happened last summer uh, in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, a few other places, Black Lives Matter people were in the streets. Uh, but, you know, it really, those were for the most part peaceful. We're looking at video from a night in Miami where in fact it was not so peaceful. Uh, what is the rationale for this bill? Why is this needed? Yeah, and this bill is not designed to address peaceful present uh, demonstrations. We're all in agreement of the First Amendment. We're all in agreement that people should be able to gather, demonstrate, and do so peacefully and be heard. The problem is what we've seen in other parts of the country and what we saw some nights, unfortunately, here in some places in Florida, is when uh, some uh, elements infiltrate those demonstrations, or sometimes they do it separately after they use the demonstration as a guise to then get in and start to destroy personal property, to start to uh, attack police officers, uh, even first responders, or just uh, regular citizens uh, that, are, that are going about their daily lives. So I think there's been a lot of talk about uh, trying to prevent demonstrations. This is not what the bill is about. And, and once it gets through the process, we'll see that the bill is about protecting property, life, and, and still preserving the First Amendment rights of those people that want to demonstrate peacefully. Oftentimes, those the, the peaceful demonstrators get uh, lumped in and actually their their uh, the perception gets hurt of what they're doing because of other folks that have decided to get involved in these other kind of activities or maybe even outside groups that have come in uh, and, and got in at the tail end of those demonstrations. You know, a lot of the, the crimes that are addressed in the bill are, are already on the criminal statutes. Evan, Jenny, there's um, a new class of crimes. Some of the penalties are toughened up. Um, listening to that rationale, what's wrong with cracking down on people who, who might use freedom of expression to do those kind of crimes? Well, first of all, I would never advocate or forgive or, well, perhaps forgive, but uh, I would never advocate for anyone that was intentionally at a protest to agitate it to the point of violence. Uh, that's first. Uh, but secondly, I think there are a couple key points that were just made. Uh, as we heard, we really didn't have the level of violence and looting and mobbing and, and, and everything else that we saw in different areas of the, of the country. We are state legislators. We are making laws for and based on Floridians. Uh, the refrain that I've heard time and time again is that this bill was based on things that never happened in the state of Florida whatsoever. Uh, they are addressing concerns from places on the west coast of the United States, not the west coast of Florida. Um, so I think it has a very chilling effect on a uh, very specific minority community um, and that that chilling effect uh, has made people feel and members of the uh, of 
of religious institutions all the way down to labor activists uh, have expressed real grave concerns about the chilling effect this is going to have on people wanting to protest. There are laws on the books for anything that you can point to that happened in the state of Florida this summer. Uh, whether a if a police officer was assaulted, that person needs to go to and be prosecuted uh, to the fullest extent of the law. If someone is vandalizing and throwing <coughs> trash cans through major uh, through large glass plate windows, that person needs to be arrested as well for destruction of personal property. We have laws on the books for all of this. But again, uh, I think it goes back to a partisan thing uh, where we're trying to get one particular portion uh, of the populace worked up and in favor of something that we really don't need. Senator Diaz, before we let you go, um, you chair the Education Committee. There are bills, uh, one of your bills, as a matter of fact, um, sort of takes the voucher programs right now, makes it a little easier for mm -hmm. parents to get through them. Uh, there is expansion of school choice is one of those perennial debates in the legislature for those pro and con. But now in this time of COVID, on public schools, when, when possibly thousands of students are not going back to public schools because of COVID-related issues, and, and that will most certainly mean that they will not be eligible for millions of dollars in state funding. Um, talk a little bit about wh what you foresee coming down the pike as far as public schools and Florida's push to expand the voucher and school choice programs. Well, Glenn, I'm actually, uh, I had uh, chaired the Senate Education Committee. I currently chair the Senate Health Committee, but I'm still involved in education as the vice chair of, uh, of education appropriations. And I, and I think number one issue is uh, across the state, we're looking to figure out not only for financial reasons, but where, where these students have gone. Have they gone to private school? Have they gone to homeschool? Why haven't that those changes been registered in the regular withdrawal process? And I think obviously this is a big product of COVID. Have they left the state, left the county? Um, the the bill that we're talking about is is actually a consolidation bill that consolidates a lot of the scholarship programs that we have across the state and streamlines the application uh, process. It's not really a, a, an expansion of the program, more of a consolidation uh, and provides consistency and streamlining. We've seen, especially during COVID, that a lot of parents have been paying more attention to their child's education, especially because they've been doing it at their dining room table. And, and a, a lot of parents have uh, expressed an interest in being able to uh, get involved in their child's education. And this bill allows for more parent involvement and steering of some of those services. But again, I think uh, that the, the number one issue that we need to deal with is uh, across the state, school districts have been held harmless uh, throughout this period uh, based on their projected enrollment. In other words, what were the students that were supposed to arrive in the fall at the school and get funded? Um, a lot of those didn't, and schools were held harmless. But going into next year, yeah. the concern is in the fall, what happens if these students don't start showing up yeah. uh, at these school districts or at these schools? And what happens to, with the, the funding that doesn't come with them? And how does that impact yeah. the number of teachers Senator, we had at the school employees, et cetera? Yeah. Right, yeah, we're talking about a, a decision, a moment worth hundreds of millions of dollars. It is big. Uh, Representative Evan Jenny, great to have you on the show. Good to see you. Thanks very much. Thanks. Senator Manny thank Diaz Jr., thank you as always. We appreciate it. Appreciate you both. Thank you. Have oh, a good weekend, guys. And you as well. All right, coming up, what happens in Vegas isn't this time going to stay in Vegas when it comes to tunnels. The lowdown on the Elon Musk tunnel tour. And can it work in South Florida? Stay tuned.
traffic underground is an idea that's captured the interest of South Florida leaders, and it comes from innovation wizard Elon Musk. And Musk's boring company completed a tunnel transport beneath the Las Vegas Convention Center, and this week, a group of leaders from South Florida went out there to check it out, see if it could work here. Broward County Vice Mayor Commissioner Michael Udine was on the trip, joins us now live via Skype from his home in Parkland. Michael, good morning. Great to see you. Welcome back. Good morning, guys. Great to uh, be here. Thank you for having me on this morning. What an exciting two days I've just had out west uh, exploring the possibilities for South Florida. It was truly amazing. Yeah, well, tell us about what you saw. <laughs> so um, we went and saw the tunnel facility that's already done and ready at the Las Vegas Convention Center. That is a tunnel. That's a loop system. So it's a 12-foot diameter tunnel that has Teslas that operate it. It's probably about a three-mile loop underground, believe it or not, underwater because it is submerged and it is a tube that goes through the convention center and about three miles. And we went in it, we went to the stations, we saw the whole thing. Um, it, was, it was really amazing. And what we're seeing now and what they're seeing is that the private sector, the casinos have come in and said, as you're able to bring this in at such a low cost, they want to spur onto it. So they're working with the casinos on the strip to send a spur towards them so that the casinos can be in part of this. And, and it was fascinating and it was uh, extremely high tech and extremely well done. I, I can see, we, re we just saw your picture, I guess, that you had put on Twitter. It looks like, you know, action figures in a big red tube. I can see how everyone could be very excited about this, but let's talk some numbers, please, if okay. we can, because the, um, I looked up that Vegas Convention Center tube, $52.5 million a mile. However, Vegas is not South Florida sitting on our own water supply and limestone, et cetera. The Port of Miami, Port Miami Tunnel, cost a billion dollars to do. That was not even a mile. So is this really a feasible way to expand transportation in South Florida? Um, so the, the, some of the preliminary numbers that came in on doing a tunnel under the new river in Fort Lauderdale was around the $3 billion number. Obviously, that's a number that's going to be too high for everybody to handle. When, uh, you know, I was tweeting with uh, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, who's been a real tech leader on this. We were tweeting with Elon Musk about doing tunnels in South Florida. And I said, this is a spot where there's actually a need for a tunnel. There's a, there is a need to do something over the new river. Conventional wisdom would have it be a bridge. But if you want to start putting tunnels somewhere, that's a spot where they can do it. Now, at $3 billion, I don't think there's an appetite for it. They built the tunnels in Vegas at $10 million a mile. So they built it at one one hundredth of a cost of what they would need to do down here. Now, I'm under no illusions after being out there. I don't think they can do under the new river exactly what they did in Vegas. I think it would be much more expensive than $10 million a mile. But let's say that it came in at $100 million a mile, just for argument's sake, you're still talking about less than the cost of putting a bridge over that new river. And what that does is, the reason we need to get over that new river is to have commuter rail going up and down the east coast of the three counties, Palm Beach County, uh, uh, Broward, and Miami-Dade. There were engineers from Brightline that were there with us they were excited. They were flying back to look at whether this is something that they could be done, that can be done. Now, if it can't there, there are still definitely other opportunities. 
but, but I, we we went the second day to on our way home to the Hawthorne test sun, tunnel. That's the picture you saw on Twitter this morning. That's done under the SpaceX facility in California. It is a mile long tunnel. You travel at 125 miles an hour. I went in it with Mayor Trantalis and a couple of the other leaders. Um, it, it's, it was built in an urban area with no obtrusion to the neighbors. They, they, it, it was amazing to see, and it's done, and it was done very quickly. Well, it's all kind of a, a gee whiz moment here for us, <laughs> Think, thinking about this happening. Uh, explain to me, if, if you will, Commissioner. Was, I mean, it was, it was a yeah, gee whiz moment ahead. to me as well. It was yeah. amazing. The possibilities were amazing. Yeah. Well, Lord knows traffic is absolutely horrendous in South Florida. It affects our economy, affects our lives every day. Um, and if there is a solution, we want to find a solution. Um, I mean, so I'm glad that you and the other leaders went out and are looking at this for the possibility of maybe finding application. But I don't frankly understand if you're talking about a bridge over the new river, uh, is it a, a train bridge? Is it, you know, for Brightline? Is it what? How, how would it work? Right. It would be a train bridge for, for the Brightline and for something to go commuter rail up that corridor. But in order to cross, in order to make commuter rail work there, you need to go by that river instead of it being three or four times a day. Now it needs to be 30 or 40 times a day, which is is very um, obtrusive to the marine industry and, and to raising, you know, to, to shutting off a, bi a big part of Fort Lauderdale's economy. Can this be done? Uh, it's, it's certainly possible. You can certainly do tunnels in South Florida. Like you said, we have one in Miami. We have one in Fort Lauderdale. We have the Henry Kenny Tunnel, which is a small tunnel. The question is, is whether the new technology that they have is going to be able to do this at a cost-feasible way that can be done in other spots in um, South Florida. The, 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 the city manager of Fort Lauderdale was there. I can tell you there was extreme excitement in his eyes. He was coming home to talk to his public works people to see where this could be put in application because you could have a two-mile people-mover type loop that can fit into a lot of places at, at, at not such a high cost. And it goes, what's going on now in South Florida is we're starting to become another tech hub. We have companies that want to be here. Um, when Amazon had its HQ3 headquarters search, one of the things that they talked about was transportation and moving things around. Now, we made the short list, so there, there could be some opportunities ahead. It's good for the economy. It adds jobs to the, to the community, and it moves people around quicker. Tesla, just, uh, Tesla, just a, a real, we, we have um, probably like 40 seconds left, but I just want to hear the financing for this. So far, Elon Musk's financing has been private. Are you thinking private investment or are you thinking public money for this? Well, there, there's going to have to be, in some spots, there could be, you know, if you did it in certain spots where there was a private facility that wanted to be part of this, if they can bring it in at a cheap enough price, that can work. But listen, there's always was a talk of using public money to cross the new river somehow. There was a 25% local yeah. match, I think a 25% state match, and a 50% federal match. Michael Udine, on... I, I beg your pardon, we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time. So glad that you could join us and very exciting stuff. We'll be watching. Keep in touch. <laughs> All righty. And we'll be right back.
We thank you for spending your hour here with us today. Remember, we are online 24-7 right there at local10.com. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday.